Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Christopher Lutterot Kwaku. Christopher is a creative entrepreneur, award-winning director and writer, operating on the axis of design, politics and film. He's the director of the ADV, an immersive forum developing empathy, insight and foresight through weaponized empathy. He's also the founder of the research archive Unmaterialized, which uses design to investigate political influences on global narratives, beliefs and systems. Christopher, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. And as you know, we are talking um, a little bit about luxury, but mostly about you. And firstly, I wanted to start with you telling us a bit about yourself, what you do, um, your place in the world. Right. Um, that's a big question for me um, because I have quite um, a big, broader history in terms of where I've lived and the things that I'm involved in. But the short answer is um, I'm a West African child. Um, I, When we moved back to the UK and settling in, I was spent a lot of time in Yemen, in Egypt, in Senegal, in Kenya and in Ghana. Um, so I'm definitely a continent baby. And then coming into the UK and then growing up here, um, I'm a designer, director and writer and I, I speak at various events and conferences. I run an organ a, a company called the ADV, which is an abbreviation for the adversary and the advocates. And we run immersive forums um, where people can occupy the, of the space and the seat of positions of power to shape the world that they wish to. Typically made for change makers, um, aspiring and established. Right, I was going to ask you what ADV stood for. And then you also have Unmaterialized. <laughs> Absolutely. Unmaterialized is a research archive. So it's a design archive specifically where we work with researchers, where we conduct research that um, or find materials that are not necessarily particularly popular and bring it to the forefront where we can discuss the emissions voids and inaccuracies that have been discussed because there's a lot of literature that's out there that um, is pretty much impenetrable to the, um, to the normal everyday human being. And we turn it into something a little bit more accessible um, in order to raise questions. So one is about um, creating cases of plausible doubts for discussion. And then the ADV is all about understanding how power is used and developed. So they are connected. They, they, they service one another. One carries the baton and passes it along. And, <laughs> and then one finishes it off. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. On ADV, on, on your website, you talk about exploring the complexity of human behavior through a weaponized empathy. Have I yeah, got that right? Absolutely. What is weaponized empathy? Describe that to us. It's a dangerous and controversial term. It usually does get a lot of people's um, attention, but weaponized empathy is specifically the act of trying to understand who people are and what they do. Um, not in a case where you're trying to force them to be to believe something, but really understand what they're trying to do and then take that information and then how is it utilized in order shaping society, laws, systems, and beliefs and narratives in which we all embody or, or tend to create. Um, it's understanding put into action in this most basic form. How do you, I mean, how do you champion the cause in your manifesto? The short answer of that, or the slightly longer answer of that, shall I say, is it varies from topic to topic. There, we have a collective of um, 12 topics or 12 sectors that break up into 12 scenarios, which gives you 24 experiences because you can operate as an adversary or an advocate. Um, the reason, the way that we get people involved is that we literally propose a scenario. So this is the sector we're looking at. For example, if it's religion and we have a scenario called higher power and simply in that scenario, so, okay, this is the state of religion discussed and is presented today. One avenue is to explore the next evolution, um, the next evolution of religion as they evolve over time or to figure out how 
faith and law intertwining more interconnectedly. We put these scenarios out. We have had invites from conferences and festivals. Um, we've had politicians and private companies and organizations who've used and got in contact with us and said, can you help us understand policies, groups of people, how we think, where are our vulnerabilities? Um, we've had a good cross section from national representatives to um, people on the ground on the front lines, just trying to get a better understanding and figure out how do we stop talking and start acting. I mean, a lot of the stuff you're talking about is quite, it's quite politically sensitive, isn't it? All of it is. <laughs> All of it is completely. Um, I'm not one to shy away from that. And I do realize that we do live in a state of caveats um, where every statement has to be, you know, with the exception of this, exception of that, exception of this. Um, because what we're finding is that the smaller groups of people or communities are standing up to be representative of themselves, which is definitely where we should be moving towards. However, what should be, what is happening now is, are we prepared to have sensitive conversations? I just had one yesterday about discussing the evolution of um, Christianity and it's passing through time on the African continent and Europe and Asia. And um, the immediate defensive response is, um, I'm a believer of Jesus and he's looked after my whole life. And I'm like, no one's ever defying that. My question is, have you looked at the factual information in terms of how the evolution has, um, the religion has evolved and what's taken apart? And it, it, it goes across all religions to some degree. Um, but I'm not afraid to have those conversations because at the end of the day, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm simply trying to get us to understand how these systems, these beliefs and these narratives impact us and how they've been brought into implementation or, or status today. No, I'm not one to shy away from difficult conversations either yeah um but it often get it could get one into trouble <laughs> always always it does um we've uh, so for example our motto is empathy insight and foresight empathy to understand who's involved insight to share our personal experiences and our our, our, our knowledge based on our specific direction and then foresight and seeing how does that go forward like i said it's there have been moments of contention in quite public spaces in terms of uh festivals and exhibitions and the great part of it is some people get confused as who's speaking. Is it you playing the role in this task or is that how you really feel? And I pause and I says, great question. Don't answer it. Let's move on and continue how we go. Because part of that friction is about clarity and understanding what the threats are, how to maneuver. Have you never heard of the saying, never talk about religion and politics? <laughs> yes, I have. Um, but to be honest, I come from a household where that was our conversation over every dinner. Christmas was all about coups and political infrastructure and war. My family, that's all we know. Coming from Africa, that is, you are exposed to those sorts of things that when living in 20th century or 21st century Europe, you, you, you know, when was the last coup in Europe? Well, ironically, I would actually say the reverse. Right. As an African child, I actually looked at Europe more with more conflict than I did with Africa. Um, simply because uh, <laughs> I see, I can see it more. It, it might not be as blatant. So for example, there's, there's a, bit, a debate where we talk about, you know, the next war isn't necessarily going to be physically fought. It's going to be cyber, in through cybernetics. And I see more corruption in Europe than I'd see on the African continent, which makes, you know, which for me makes me laugh. How people, you know, you know, talk about the African continent and Asia and say, oh, we need to send aid. You know, there's some towns and cities and communities in, you know, America and the UK that we should probably be sending money to to support. It's visible. Yeah, I know. And not everyone's ready to have that conversation, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think it's quite interesting. I think that when one looks at Africa, mm -hmm. I suppose the corruption is possibly much more visible. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> it's mm. not complicated. <laughs> 
people <laughs> buying jets and fast cars and uh, yeah things like that you know we're still surprised at boris and um dyson and all this you know for me that's just that's child's play I, we, we we've seen the dialogues and if you're an avid documentary watcher you see the developments of things and if you're paying close enough attention you know you can understand the complexities but you know it's a rabbit hole yeah okay so we'll we'll sidestep the rabbit hole for now <laughs> um what excites you mostly about the work you do what gets you going um to be honest, it's the plethora of people that we get to sit around. Um, the, the way we designed the experience is about eight people, specifically with the ADV, the, the Immersive um, Forum. We designed it, designed it so they're eight people and directly in a position where you have to sit opposite somebody. Um, there is no position of hierarchy in that setting. And what we typically have found is that you can have a military commander of a country sitting opposite a an artist or a philosopher or a humanities student or um, an ambassador of a nation, which we've had. Um, and just simply be there to get an understanding is, oh, I never considered it that way. Oh, I've never understood it. You know where, for example, um, you're seeing a lot of training coming on board, you know, uh, diversity training, uh, you know, gender equality training. Um, I've been to them, I've tried them, and I know that they're necessary. However, I would also argue if you did it this way, <laughs> you would find that you would get to the crux of the problem, how people think a lot quicker, um, because you ask them to be themselves and to occupy a particular perspective. And it's just great to see um, how people think other people think. And so you can get that organic conversation in, in a collective focus. And I just like to listen to people talk who know what they're talking about i i think there's more to gain through listening than there is through talking that's always how i've lived that's how i was raised and can you imagine a room of 20 people i'm sorry it's like eight times five, so 40 people um in a room and you just get to say wow so much knowledge so much insight it's it's unbelievable i'm, I'm just here to learn and then help and give provide this information make this information accessible too much is done behind closed doors where people feel powerless um, what if you understood how things were done? Could you be better insulated against them? Would you stop being surprised? Um, that's what I'm really trying to push for. I mean, what you're talking about is really complex, isn't it? Yeah, in some sense it's complicated, but I don't think it's as complicated as what people say. I I'm answering this in context to what we do, but I think just generally, if you sat down and watched the news with a friend or with your child, and you said, oh, look at what's going on here, and then you said, okay, this is what's happening, but how did it get this way? A very innocent question. And then, well, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And by just getting rid of the jargon and the bureaucratic kind of like um, posturing, um, you can be like, this is what happened. And you obviously you would have different perspectives on what happened. And then we're like, well, let's talk about it. It's, it's a lot simpler to have the conversation than people believe, but it's whether they're, they're willing to admit that they don't know everything. That's the hard bit. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, because somebody's always right. Apparently, for yeah, a moment. Apparently, exactly. <laughs> for a moment. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, opinions are, are there to be represented, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're supposed to, I see them as vines. They're supposed to scale a topic and then weave their way around it and grow and find different directions. That's the way that I view opinions. Um, and I, I, as a testament to that, I think that's the best way. Yeah. I mean, you talk about yourself as a designer, a filmmaker, right. an educator, <laughs> and that's, you know, great. Mm. What strikes me most is that you're a storyteller. Yeah, I've been referred to as that. <laughs> what can I say? I, uh, storytelling, I don't necessarily believe as a separate title. I think that is a that is within the DNA of trying to communicate effectively. 
storytelling is necessary. I mean, we've all come across an individual who's incredibly intelligent, incredibly, you know, amazing. But the thing that stops them from ever implementing their ideas or speaking to people is the fact that they don't know how to package what it is that they're saying. Um, this is why I've also I also do a lot of work in creative entrepreneurship. It's you can have the most amazing thing, but if you don't know how to talk about it or how to talk to people, it is going to die a lonely death. And there's a strong narrative. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I'm always one for purpose for everything. I'm also intrigued at the use of your language and how you describe things. It's just interesting to me um, how on your various websites you describe the scenarios that you that you create. Mm. You tell us about. Um, you know, these experiences in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just wondering, you you described turning, is it turning knowledge into action? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, turn knowledge into action. Yeah. Elaborate on that a little Tell bit. Us a, elaborate on <laughs> that a little bit. Yeah, we have two key things that I, I really stand by, which is um, understanding over accusations and then turning knowledge into action. Um, the first is about, it's easy to accuse and it's easy to blame um, because it, it kind of ends the conversation. You know, this person's bad, game over, throw them away. Um, But people and ideologies don't die with people. And that's the problem is that we feel that if we get rid of a specific kind of person or thing, then no one else believes in it. Um, That's not true. We've seen that, you know, many, many times over in different places. Um, So I'm seeking understanding. Of course, that's not to say that justice shouldn't happen. It should, but it can happen in conjunction with comprehension. And this is what we're seeking. We're seeking understanding in every aspect, which is why we have the 12 sectors of society represented um, through the ADV experience, which is why through Unmaterialized, we are focusing on specific narratives, beliefs and systems in different parts of the world that are ingrained. So we can start unpick, un, unpicking them. Knowledge into action comes through my frustration of having too many smart friends who talk for eight hours about something and then only stop because they get tired. You know, I, I'm reminded of the documentary I watched with um, with Nina Simone, James Baldwin, um, sitting in, in their coffee like lounge, um, discussing with their children running around about the state of Black America and what's going on. And I'm like, these are people who are discussing the same problems we were discussing today. And what I didn't want was for us X amount of decades later to be doing that. And I find myself that I am, and I don't want to do that. I, what I want to do is, yes, have that conversation, but figure out what we're going to do about it. How do we make this better? The worst, the most revealing question you can, or you can always someone ask someone who complains about something is, okay, so what should we do? And then they just go silent. And I, a friend of mine is an amazing academic, um, Kodra Karam, who wrote phenomenal PhD stuff. You should check him out. He, he made a comment, goes, academics are sometimes not the most useful people when it comes to action. They theorize everything to death. And then when it comes to doing something, they just stop. Um, that's not my life. And that's not what I want to encourage. I want us to figure out how to do things. So how do you make change? Ooh. <laughs> um, there are ways in doing that that are tried and tested. So the one argument that people usually say is, um, oh, it's the, it's the children, the next generation are going to make the change. We've been saying that for X amount of time. For me, I find that being an abandonment of the um, older generations, just saying, listen, we've done what we can. But re- in fact, you can, still can. You have all the knowledge, you just need labor and the youth are willing to be labor. We've seen that. Um, so it's about that clarity. As, as an African child, I can tell you that as you get, as elders get older, you don't just become old, you become a, an elder. And therefore your responsibility is the vision of your family and your the descendants, the children are there to execute until they can fulfill. 
um, change is, a, is about one, informing, of course, but equipping, not just through thought, but through capabilities and skills in order to sustain what it is that you're trying to build. Um, I had this conversation very recently um, about the integration of people and ideas. And I said, I'm not trying to change other people to, uh, to accept me. I'm trying to make sure that whatever it is that you're doing can be sustained internally by who you are and the people that support it. Sustainability is more than just saving trees. It's about sustaining your ideas and the, and the, and the vision that you have um, to make sure it can keep going. So change comes down with self-sufficiency and turning that vision into a practical step plan and um, with no egos. What's our first step? What do we need to do? And that varies from topic to topic. Of course, awareness is one, but who are you trying to make aware? People who are not part of your cause or people within it? Sometimes we waste our time trying to convert the people who definitely don't want to be a part of it. I'm not really for that all the time. They will know when they realize they become irrelevant that they, these things are going to happen. And there's probably a question you will ask later, but I'll save that response for them. But <laughs> this, is, this is how you create change, is sustaining and empowering the agendas and the causes that you want to move forward. How do you deal with the egos? So as a designer, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it sounds like an emerging politician. Right. You know, the egos all around yeah. you. You know, designers are the biggest egos, as do politicians. How do you navigate that, um, that uh, channel? Um, it's a simple argument of power. People have egos. It's, it's not that complicated. This is the thing. People have egos because they're typically insecure. They're trying to protect or put themselves in a position of authority because they want to keep themselves relevant. Now, the greatest things that we've learned is that if you have no leader or your leader is not present, but all of the participants are competent, anyone can go, but the movement will still happen. So what I try and make sure that happens whenever I'm dealing with people in leadership is that you are not necessary for my development or what is coming forward. If you do not wish to back whatever is going on, that's fine. We will find a way to do it. It sounds quite radical in a sense, but I refuse. I don't think dependency is a good thing. I think competency is the goal here. And when you have people with egos, you can let them self-destruct, but you build the unit and the egos will stand alone. I'm just thinking whether or not the egos would want to stand alone. <laughs> them wanting, not wanting to stand alone is not your problem. They will if they do, they do not have the unit. So um, they, the, the, the main thing about egos and power is that it needs people to validate them. But as soon as you start to expose, expose flaws or vulnerabilities or the fact that they are diminishing you in some way, shape or form, you're like, oh, wow, this is how I'm being utilized. And you're like, no, come where you're valued. Be part of a unit. And all of a sudden you see the people that want to dominate they will have no one to die and therefore they're becoming... You've seen it in how people address cults, for example, and sex. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing new. And this is the, the point where I talk about democratizing knowledge and making it accessible. I'm trying to figure out whether strategies are evolving or whether they're just being recycled. And as I'm having more conversations through these experiences, I'm finding that they're just being recycled in different spaces. They're not particularly new, um, but... I'm still early stages of the journey. Well, maybe about 175 tactics in. So let's see. Wow. Okay, so there's a tenuous link here to luxury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's this tenuous link to luxury is ego, power, mm -hmm. storytelling. Okay. And politics. In its broadest term, yeah. In the 18th century, luxury was political. Yeah. And in its 
still is a bit mm. the economic viability of it yeah you know maintaining these brands maintaining their position um in the world mm -hmm. and i was wondering if you had any thoughts about that structure i've definitely been a part of that and in those rooms with those conversations whether that's been with institutions or with um commercial brands in that capacity or even small scale smes luxury exists because in those discussions in different ways on the big kind of for example in things like um well can, can, maybe we can refer to fashion and maybe we can find an alternative model a, alternative example if you look at certain brands that become household names they're typically riding on the history and their association now not all of that history is clean but the fact that they've been around forever um gives them a sense of pride um, and that pride comes down to an, uh, the discussion of nationalism. We are the fabric of us as a community. The question is, which is what people are facing right now, if you're watching the industry very carefully, is brands such as Burberry and all these kind of like national brands are struggling or trying to figure out how do we connect to the people that aren't so much on the nationalistic kind of perspective, which is, you know, the movement to streetwear, which in this case I'm calling hip hop. <laughs> right fundamentally um i i just find it you know you want to call it streetwear it is what it is it comes from hip-hop and black culture so um it's like how do we make it relevant and that's where the question of you know like what is considered luxurious here is it the ability to be part of a movement is it the the status symbol um and so i saw an, an interesting image where it talks about the depression of design and you look at all these household logos become extremely sterile and that's maybe saying something. The individuality thing it might be shifting and we're no longer focusing on the logo, but on the overall aesthetic, not as a single garment piece, but as who it's sitting on. Um, and, you know, as we're heading into a more um, democratizing but establishing of leaders, maybe that's what we're looking at, the influencers. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I absolutely get the hip hop thing. Mm -hmm. There have been instances of cultural appropriation right. by lots of these big brands. In terms of the, the the community right now, what's relevant? What is and, and let me check. Let me correct me the term relevant. When I say relevant, what is um, trending or what is of pop in popular demand? They do not have a lineage from, and you're seeing that in in, in multiple instances. So from Eurocentric brands appropriating um, national um, success of hip hop music hip-hop music um, engaging and having their their rights to reference African heritage and then African heritage at this point establishing itself itself as its own powerhouse where you're seeing African music being sampled into hip-hop again so um, there is no choice in, in terms of integrating because they, the thing is with those big brands they have to appropriate because they have no connection yeah. and, and they're but not humble enough. is it a bad thing that they're doing that? Is what? Is appropriation a bad thing? Yeah. See, the, the thing about appropriation is that in this current state, it is a bad thing. Because when you have a brand that looks at something that may exist in, um, from the, for example, the Benin Empire, and you take their cultural infrastructure and patterns, but don't acknowledge the fact that there were absolute mathematicians and exquisite geniuses um, and just paint them only as one thing and then take that print and say, hey, look at this new pattern we created. That's appropriation and not giving credit where it's due. Um, if you had a team or people inside your team that had a lineage that and can talk about the and reference the, the height of educational humanity at points in human history, 
and let that shine through through representation through that adver- advertisement then what it is it's not appropriation is gi- is giving um is hom- paying homage right so <laughs> I mean, so this is an e- this is an easy fix isn't it really yeah because you you know it's about acknowledging the source yeah. it's about making sure that you're not diminishing the 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 asset right and it's articulated by the people who are from there and, have, and can say that yeah um it, yeah. it's not complicated but i think to to weave your your questions in from earlier to this one about power and egos the ego will always restrict you from being humble and this is part of the problem with a lot of nations is uh, and and in leadership is that if you admit that there is excellence somewhere else apart from where you are at that means you have to treat and at the bare minimum you have to acknowledge equality and sometimes this, um, these people have superseded you then you don't have the follower econo- economy people will then diversify. So in some sense, globalization has been a massive financial um, benefit, but at the same time, it's exposed um, origins of, of genius and excellence, which is now starting to corrode itself because, oh my gosh, we've highlighted where amazing things have come from. Will people stay here? That's interesting. And that applies to business as well. It's not business, like politics, isn't food, um, political infrastructure, health, um, religion, um, identity, governance. It's all over the place. Are you a tech geek? In ways, yes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm fascinated by um, technology, old and new. There's so much that I'm looking at right now. Ironically, a lot of the technology that I've been looking at is actually thousands of years old um, that we haven't actually been able to use yet. Um, for example, the um, piezoelectric basins that we found in ancient civilizations to distill water, things of that capacity. Um, I'm looking at technology in ways in how we can re-stimulate um, humanity to some degree in terms of their activity, but also in the way that they think. Um, I consider religion a technology. Um, some people think that's controversial, but think about it. Controversial because? Um, because there's a, dis- there's, a, there's a dispute sometimes looking at faith, the distinction between faith and religion. That is where people have a bit of a, you know, friction, which I'm all down for the conversation as long as you're willing to have it, um, because they they sometimes don't tell the, they can't tell the difference or they're not willing to accept the difference, and so therefore it, it feels like it's, they're being attacked by it. But you know, it's a dialogue. So faith is what you believe, religion being the infrastructure that creates the governance of it, which should possibly be a little bit more flexible. Um, and maybe be a little bit more accurate here and there. And the reference to technology? The reference to technology comes down to the, the process of implementation. Technology in terms of how we engage. So, for example, methods of prayer. Um, how do we access God? How do we access our deities? Um, technology as a, as a ritualistic kind of performance, they evolve over time. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, well, at this point, we have um, text chats where you can text God and get responses. Um, we have publications. Um, this is what I'm seeing as a way of a technology to assist and play a role in humanity's behavior. Um, that's how I see technology. It's being a part, not always assist, but, in, you know, play a part in it. Well, the Pope has a podcast. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I'm sure. I've just made that up, but I'm sure he probably does. I do remember at one point, um, Tiger Woods and the Pope had the same um, PR agency. Well, there you go. See? Hey. it's like w1a well there you go so there's not i mean but this happens in many places um and that is the question of regarding 
when you look at it in the context of technology, what does progress look like? What does evolution look like? And that's where there's conflict. And what does it look like to you? Technology and progress comes down to the ethical argument of um, how much progress is necessary and at what and at what cost. Um, sometimes the cost comes down to people's um, desire and ability to change. Um, we've all seen or come across people who believe they know what they believe and they're too old to figure out something new. Um, I've seen people that have switched um, political parties, but all they've known is one thing for X period, a period amount of time, and then they've had to, but they've had to re-educate and re-establish their their entire thought process and the way that they live. Um, sustainability has been a great example of that um, in regards to the climate change. Oh, we'll throw it away and we'll recycle. It's like, wait, that doesn't work. So now we have to change our behavior. Can you be bothered to wake up that extra five minutes early to sort your garbage out? Things of that nature. It's whether people are, once again, have diminished their ego enough to realize that they can, they need to change for potentially better. Talking about issues around sustainability and changing behavior, mm -hmm. fashion, the automotive industry, the watch industry, right. you know, are very reluctant to change. Yeah, I think the biggest example is education because, and I, I use education in the broadest term, uh, in talking about the disclosure of information and access, that we have a standardization of what people should learn and when, and the curriculum and what they should be able to achieve and what they need to know in order to qualify. That is all very specific on what kind of type of citizen you're creating. You know, that goes to the whole argument. <laughs> if we're really global, should we be teaching a bit of everything? How much do you need to know? How do you create allegiances? And that's another conversation. Absolutely, let's it? leave that, yeah. But I, I think you're absolutely right. Everything is, it's a conveyor belt. Yeah, and there's no bigger one than the discussion around identity. I just want to go back to the, the change and change for good and just thinking about... The before before we started this, you said you know luxury it opens up this this a, a minefield, right? Absolutely, because everybody has a you know everyone has an opinion on what luxury might be, yeah, or what it might not be, or how it manifests itself. Mm. These global corporations have the capacity to educate and, but to genuinely educate and to genuinely direct change yeah and i just wondered what you thought about that that's a big one the ability for for large organizations companies and institutions to affect change um and in and in sense you know develop the next generation of people to step into their system that is that is a problem um if you restrict the amount of information that they have access to and whether you whether you're um you're not exposing them all their options um, I think it's problematic when there's ignorance, ignorance in any capacity, which means that we have to create an opportunity for people to be more, um, quote unquote, worldly and, and um, ex with larger amounts of exposure. I'm speaking as someone who was privileged enough to see a large spectrum of like communities and, and infrastructures and figure out that I can't diminish or speak against any specific group of people because I understand why they do that even if I agree with it or disagree with it. What we have to do at this point is to, stop, is to start creating conscious consumers. And that's the hardest thing. Um, and because if you can choose what it is that you not just consume, but whether you take it on board and implement it, that makes a big difference. So for example, um, I think at the time of recording, we're talking at a time where, was it Facebook, Google, um, 
Twitter um, and Amazon were taken to what's it some tribunal situation I can't remember where it was and they were talking about them having too much um, power by having too much control um, I, I believe uh, Murdoch kicked that off way back when um, and about having enough competition where the business has changed where people who are now innovating technology or, or um, systems are actually just developing it to sell to one of these nine companies. Um, and then we've got the recent release of the Apple iOS, what, 14.5 something, um, where you can choose whether your ads are um, associated with what you've been looking at online. Um, they are platforms that are thoroughly peeved, I put it PC, um, <laughs> at that <laughs> they peeved at that possibility of um, people being able to choose because it impacts their revenue streams. Um, conscious consumers are the, are the most dangerous thing because they have, if they are, if they're willing to make active choices and able to implement those, um, those decisions, those choices, we, that the follower economy in which I've started to call it, um, starts to diminish. You look at the luxury brand industry, right? you know, there are three companies in effect that control the entire supply chain, right? you know, and that's power. That is, that is. There's one, only one way to do it. There's only one other way to do it, which is, it's harder, but gener generational thinking, collective, collective efforts. You c it is possible to make some of these powerhouses irrelevant. It is definitely possible. Whether or not you want to go through the inconvenience of it is another thing. Is it possible? I mean, because they're not just supplier of goods. I mean, they political powerhouses. Right. They con you know, they control over markets and yeah. politicians and finance is quite phenomenal as well as scary at the same time. Absolutely. And I think that you would find no better example than that in the music industry, not necessarily just fashion, with the discussion of record labels being able to control radio play, um, product distribution, advertising, um, access to venues, until, or not until, until you, um, but when you have examples of people like Prince, who will say, Forget buying my CD. <laughs> At the time, we're talking CDs or finals. Come to my concert and you get it for free, right? Or part of the package. And as soon as you wean yourself off the dependency, you, what you start creating is disruption because there were people that had no radio play but still have been able to have cult followings. I think part of the issue is the mentality that we want everybody to be behind us when in fact you only need a certain key number of people. You can live very, very... Um, there's a, there's a, an artist slash businessman called Ryan Leslie who is kind of pushing the idea of telephone marketing um, through t telephone, yeah, telephone marketing, but in this context of giving people your number, messaging and building a relationship with your customers personally on the um, producer to consumer level and skipping the middleman. Um, it does take more effort. It does require, but it is more lucrative because your percentage of the pie is higher. Depending on which nation you're from and where you want to operate, there are opportunities out there and, and it is possible. It is hard. I will not lie to you because I've been trying to do it and I know people who, who have been trying to. It is difficult, but that comes down to your goals. Um, how important is independence today than um, financial freedom? And, and you know, that, that's a decision that we will have to make. You spoke earlier about um, sustainability. What does that mean to you? How would you define it? Sustainability for me is the, is the, is the illusion, um, well, what was considered the illusion of perpetual motion, the ability to generate something and to, for it to keep on going um, without requiring extra <laughs> to keep going. Um, and if we viewed 
majority of the world or, or all of these new components like that, we have there's there's there, there are ways in, in order to put effort into something and for it to yield and then it to go back into the system and, and feed itself and produce. Um, the problem that we're facing in many cases, whether that's in um, culture production or in um, economic infrastructures, um, is is one consumer loyalty and two the inconvenience of um, getting your hands dirty. And when I say dirty, I'm talking about labour. I know people that you know we've entered an outsourcing kind of like time where we want to get other people to do so much stuff. Where we're, we're in the case we're getting a lot of people who can speak about things but can't do much. I think that's a problem, uh, and I think that's where a lot of my friends have been saying, you know, the talk is still going on, but <laughs> if you want to do something, yeah, yeah, you've got yeah. to know how to do it. Sustainable. I mean, the word is becoming quite old-fashioned, isn't it? Yeah, it's dead. <laughs> well it's not dead it's not dead it's just like it's fatigued <laughs> it's yeah i was just thinking what's the other word um well i know it's important to have words because it gives people something to rally around it depends on which context because i use the terms at one point sustainability was specifically about environmental issues only um i use it in the context i've been heard it being used in the, in the business context in terms of finances um i've also seen it being used in a, in a race of production. Um, I've also been heard it being used in the states of um, faith-based systems. It's like, can you sustain your, 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 your flock, your, your community? Um, it's, it's now, it, it is a gen- generic word. And I don't know who kind of like, you know, sponsored the ad on that word to become <laughs> the the climate change word, but it has applications everywhere. But I don't know what the actual word. I would rather deal with things specifically. So if we're talking about climate change, let's talk about climate change. Let's talk about climate justice. If we're talking about um, the idea of people's identity and citizenship, let's talk about um, the the conflict and the the internal um, battle between identity of belonging to a state, but also being culturally belonging to somewhere else. Let's let's be specific of what it is that we're talking about. So in this caveat kind of phase that we're in with every conversation, we almost stop the generalization and we be specific about what it is that we're talking about. But then again, that requires effort. And it means that you can't lazily, <laughs> you can't lazily quote somebody. <laughs> you have to know what you're talking about. Probably is time to move on because mm. it doesn't, it, do, it does, it doesn't have the same resonance anymore no. as it did. Um, yeah, I, one of the biggest thing that I've, I've looked when I think about climate change and sustainability and environmentally, I, I think about the indigenous and native um, communities and then being able to their voice being as valid as celebrities, um, and not necessarily need figureheading to need that to do that. That's something that I think about. Yeah. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was just thinking of Cher and the elephant. Did you see? You know, there was the old this old elephant in Pakistan, mm. and Cher championed its release. It had been in captivity for thirty years. Interesting. Um, but she didn't actually do anything. She just <laughs> yeah, figurehead. They just there you go. yeah, exactly. But the elephant's now released and is now was flown. I don't know, ten thousand miles away to this sanctuary, mm-hmm. and it's now much happier. I mean, which is a good thing. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> I just thought of that when you said figureheads. Mm-hmm. We try to change. You know, we try not to buy so many things. And I think this, you know, I'm talking about now consume consumption. Okay. I'm talking about consumption. You know, with this past year, we've definitely not bought as much. 
Um, well, some of us haven't. But, uh, <laughs> I'm raising my eyebrow <laughs> if anyone can't see okay. me. But yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, some of us haven't bought as much <laughs> right. over the past year. Some have. And in fact, I interviewed somebody the other, the other day from Richard Mill, the watch company. Right. And they've sold, you know, their watches aren't, um, you know, they're not five ninety nine. They're hundreds of thousands of pounds, right. and they haven't stopped selling. Mm. Um, the watch market has done exceptionally well over the past year. Wow! But I was, I mean, that's not what I was. Uh, I was going to ask you about. <laughs> I was going to ask you about change and about the way we consume, and if you think that you know, the more we consume encourages more people to continue to consume and creates this wasteful mentality. I can comment on that to some degree. I think um, there was an advert that I just saw by Levi's, which was this whole, whole idea of um, buying less, making better, lasting longer. That ultimately means less waste. Like there's, there's that, I might be misquoting the order of that phrase. Forgive me, anyone who's a Levi disciple, but um, it is what it is. Um, but there's, there is that discussion when it comes to fashion and waste and, and uh, that side. I would also say that the, the, it comes back to my previous comment about consumption, which is we are holding, we are allowing a lot of people to get away with overconsumption or poor consumption because, because other people do it. Now, let me caveat that in this, state, in this day and age. And saying that there's sometimes the consumption of the inferior, quote unquote, um, fast, low quality, short lifespan products, whatever they may be, um, are a necessity due to circumstances that they live in. The question, I think, in a much larger discussion is whether it is sustainable in terms of waste, right? not just in materials, but in terms of human lives to maintain the extremely rich to extremely poor. Is that sustainable? And what is the what is the consequence of that? Um, because if you start to reduce that gap, what happens there? So that's quite interesting because when you think when you think about luxury goods, mm-hmm. I keep bringing it back. Yeah. When you think about luxury goods, the makers of those luxury goods mm-hmm. typically can't afford the things they're making. Yeah, I've been in places that I can't afford to buy them. <laughs> I, I think that's perfectly. I think that's that's an annoying dichotomy. You know, ask anyone that's worked retail, ask anyone that's, you know, even designers, people, you know, designers that have produced publications or, or like outcomes that have been in ads and you ask them how much they got paid and then you ask them how much has their product, um, their product yielded for the company and they would never see that in their lifetime. Um, there's a company called, um, there's an artist called um, Swiss Beats, uh, which is uh, a gentleman that works with, I've forgotten his last name now. Oh my gosh, this is blasphemous. Um, and he has an organization called No Commission and this idea of selling artwork. Um, but every time it gets sold, the original artist get in a royalty. Now that only exists in the music industry prior, but not in the fine art world. And this is something that's actually really important is that the, the discussion of royalties in the, in the continuous sale of products, what does that mean to the people who make them? What does that mean to their economy? There, there's that discussion to be had, but you know, that, that requires changing the system, but how many organizations are willing to take more profits to be honorable? They are driven by margins. Money. Yeah. But th- this is something that I've been exploring, which is about understanding different economic um, models. Um, I believe it was a, um, in the midst of the, I tend to call it a pandemic, um, <laughs> that 
there was one specific nation, I can't remember which one, it may be one of the Scandinavian nations that discussed that your economy doesn't always need to go up. It could actually level off and maintain. What's to tell you that, you know, this idea that, you know, if you're staying still, you're losing. The discussion is, you know, about the 3% inflation rate for most for most nations. Those things can stabilize. And if you maintain a comfortable level, then that means you're not demanding extra or wasting more or exploiting more. Um, you can actually work on raising the lower part up and then you actually have more consumers to operate on that equal level. But this is where um, the, the, the idea of the individual being distinctive and having a position over somebody, the luxury of being different um, comes in and whether people are willing to do so. I mean, we've spoken a lot, a lot about change and a lot about waste. Right. How do you change people's wasteful behavior? In which context? Well, just generally. <laughs> um, this is a question I've asked everybody is how do we change, you know, just change the way people, a lot of people take things for granted. Right. You know, because you can just go out and buy whatever it is. It doesn't matter how much it is. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be one ninety nine. It could be 20p. It could be $10,000 or 10,000 pounds, whatever mm -hmm. it is. Um, but how, how do we change the psyche so that people don't think, oh, it's okay to just go and buy? I, w I remember now what I was going to say previously, and I think this answers your question. Um, the idea of how do we change people or, or create change um, in systems to, um, to create less waste um, comes down with this idea of having different representations of different models available and accessible. There's some people who have seen success in other regions or in other cultures, but feel that they ca they cannot implement it in their system because they do not have the cultural context or um, the the cultural understanding to bring it in inside. If you talk about the value of a human being, their competency, how much is somebody worth? Um, Facebook has told us that in terms of our data, that's one way of measuring someone's value. The other one is in terms of how much um, how much they can yield as an individual. You'll find that in, through venture capitalists and through employees. Um, and then you can talk about their influence on people. And that's where you look at people in education and teachers. What I would say is that the first step is to have representation and examples of different examples of um, successful models that have come from not only just different cultures, but different times in human history, because they do exist and they are out there. This, um, the second is about not asking people to change. I'm, I'm no longer at a place where I think I need to ask you to do better. That's, that's, no, that's not my job. I don't need to ask you that. That was... Even your parents didn't ask you to do better. They, at one point, they said, this is the way to do better. If you reject it, there were consequences, um, either from them or from the world. So it's not about making um, or, you know, in, um, or ask them to do better. It's about showing them that if you do not do better, you become irrelevant. And irrelevance is worse than condemnation. Or your parents always wanted you to do the best that you could. That's debatable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think for some, it goes, oh, be the best that you can. And then when they see the best that you can, and then they're still disappointed, like, oh, crap, I wish you would be better. That, that conversation <laughs> exists. Like I said, different mentalities, different cultures, different households. The best that you can be was not necessarily sufficient. It was, what's your reference point? If you are the best on what you can be based on what you know, and you know nothing else, then that's all you can do. But if you have greater references and you implement those examples, then the best you can be is better than those. 
and therefore you should and can be better depending on the ecosystem and the system that you're in but it is possible yeah i wanted to ask you about what you think luxury is i knew this question was coming so i'm not asking you what your luxury is i'm asking you what you think luxury is i knew this question was coming and i still didn't have the most exact answer for it luxury i'm going to ramble off a couple of things and then when it feels right i'll stop because i think there's somewhere where i'll put it off luxury luxury is living in a state that is not based on necessity i think that's the most common thing people agree with now that state of not living in necessity appears in different ways um depending in which context you're discussing or what you're operating in and i i i do come back to understanding that the different parts of society have different types of luxuries and to different kinds of people for some reason we are shying away from a, from creating a basic standard of living or basic standard of rights and 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 justifications to what it is to be human and um to have a standard and as a standardized and acceptable way of of life um because people are scared of that equality and that because there's the ego comes under threat here that the leverage ultimately that's how i see it i think that there are multiple examples of what that looks like in different places um but in order to have luxury you also need to have accountability and i think a lot of people miss out on the luxury because they're not willing to take accountability or they've been specifically restricted from attaining the position in which luxury is possible or attainable so um how do you mean restricted uh the glass ceiling exists depending on what on what system you're living in there are things that or people or organizations or companies that do not permit um certain access to materials education and people have invented ways to segregate themselves in multiple ways you know first it was religion then it became race then it became you know um um identity and all the different things that facets that exist within that whether that is um uh sex gender sexuality ability or different abilities race um ethnicity depending on on you know because I'm not a big fan of the word as races and that capacity if you look at ethnicity um and then also conduct we we we've seen these are the restrictions that people are facing and that's because those that are holding those you know people used to wear gatekeepers i think that's another word that i'm i'm growing like extreme distaste for um not because i don't agree with it it's just it it, it distances it too much sometimes and sometimes you need to just call it what it is um that when they those individuals companies and organizations and some of them are charities believe it or not um and the exchange in order to make people rise the conditions i've seen people say i will help you but only if you do this and then that thing compromises who that person is or where they come from um that's the exchange and sometimes the exchange is not worth it so what is your luxury <laughs> i have a lot <laughs> i've i've been um i feel that i've lived a very luxurious pandemic for me I've been very fortunate that I haven't had um as many losses as others. Um I've been very um fortunate that I've been able to actually support and provide for others beyond my immediate circle. And 
my my I I wouldn't even call it advice. Is that my I would call it advice to some degree because um, I think luxury also is a burden. Uh, okay, <laughs> luxury can be an extreme burden. Is and why is that? Before you say, um, luxury is a burden to some to some because um, the example that I use when I say luxury is a burden is that there are many instances in which I can enter many different types of rooms and speak with different kinds of people. But the only way they understand or accept what it is, who and what it is that I am is because I know how to operate in their world. And that's a luxury, but also um, a burden because I'm multidimensional and they're not. Okay. And that's taxing. <laughs> um, okay. That's what I mean by the burden of, of luxury. Um, that's one example. And um, that's where I would say that I have luxuries, but I, I, there's sometimes where I have vices which is which is that sometimes options <laughs> having options is a great luxury but it can also be a vice where if you're not um if your ascent or development is halted by somebody else lack of preparation or lack of ability to or um the stagnation in let in letting you go forward i don't i for me that's a problem for me um so always providing options I think which everybody should have is uh, is advice for me because it's like if I if I cannot produce what it is I want to do I want to evolve at the rate in which I'm comfortable and I have to wait for somebody else. Um, it's a luxury that I have the an option to go around that or to find other means. But I also see that as um, a bit of advice is it can be it can be something that can take away because not everyone it, it breeds a certain ecosystem where people feel insecure. Um, not necessarily me, but I've seen that happen to many people and it's really sad to see when it goes wrong. Um, but I have, you know, there are many luxuries that I have. Food is one. I was blessed with a mother who's a chef. Oh, lucky you. I live a very good, <laughs> I've lived a very good um, live, eating life. Uh, music was, um, come from a musical family and entertainment and dancing family, extremely educated family. We have a lot of access to knowledge and spaces and people. Some people don't. Um, my education is a luxury. Granted, I had to pay. It wasn't easy to acquire it, <laughs> but my 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 um, fuel was that there are people out there that will do so much for the things that I have access to, even though I had to struggle for them. That to not exploit them to the best of their ability and to provide opportunities for them for me is disrespectful. And it's ungrateful. What's your favorite food that your mother makes? There's a big list. Um, as a, as I, I grew up on Chebujan first. Contomra <laughs> um, is another one. Um, uh, Sebeflor is another one. So if, for anyone, Ghanians that understand um, garden eggs and yam and uh, spinach stew and Chebujan, I know the West Africans definitely understand yeah. that. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big food person. I think in an alternative life, there are probably two other roles I would have tried. A chef being one of right. them. Okay. <laughs> well, that's not a bad career choice. Yeah, it's a good move. It's a good move. Let's see. Let's see how far I get. Brilliant. Christopher, thank you. Um, this has been a, a, a fantastic uh, conversation and I'm really pleased that we, we've had this hour together. Um, <laughs> we could have sat here for many more hours, but um, I definitely so. Yeah, no, no. It's be it's you know it's it's great to have a conversation that just flows, you know, just flows naturally, and um, we could see kind of episode two, three, four, five um, emerge out of this. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And um, I know that we crossed, we covered a lot of different areas and topics, and I hope that doesn't prove to be problematic. But I think there's, we can see the interconnectedness, and I appreciate um, the time and your, um, your, you permitting though that fluidity to happen. Um, so thank you for having me, and hopefully, maybe somewhere down the line, we can come back again. Thank you so much. And thanks to our partners, Intellect Books, and thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.